This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Jared Yates Sexton, historian and host of the Muckrake podcast, author of the new book, Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Your book, Jared, tells the story of how it comes to pass that our modern world is trapped in the poisoned reality of apocalypse. You present us with a moral and intellectual history of the past 2,000 years. Deconstruct the mythology of what goes by the name of Western civilization. No small task, but to my mind at least, you accomplish it with your gift for highlighting the telling incident in the significant detail. Where would you like to begin? With the last of the Roman emperors and the first of the Catholic popes? In the years of your childhood, with your grandmother reading to you from the Book of Revelation? With Donald Trump in sight of the Washington Monument blowing the trumpets of Armageddon? Well, first of all, Lewis, um, thank you for that kind introduction. I think for me, one of the things that uh, has constantly weighed on me, I, I started cutting my teeth in politics and analysis back in 2016, in which I was going into uh, Donald Trump rallies um, as he was uh, trying to get the Republican nomination. And what I found then, and this was back in the era where you know the networks were still training their cameras on him and still you know airing every moment of every speech and it was more or less to lark i think a lot of us remember that this was covered of course in entertainment sections in in some publications and what i found there in 2016 really really uh, alerted a, a, an anxiety in me that something really ugly was beginning to build in the united states and one of the things that I found in having conversations with his supporters and watching the rhetoric that he used and a lot of these radicalizing conspiracy theories that were at the heart of Trumpism, one of the things that frightened me the most was that I recognized a conspiratorial thinking that had taken place in my family, in the churches that I grew up in, in the community that I grew up in, uh, in rural Indiana. And you know, back then it was um, church services were filled with apocalyptic visions. Uh, as you had mentioned, we, we read from the book of Revelation. We believe that there was a massive conspiracy theory called the New World Order. Basically, our, our Sundays were filled with uh, weaponized paranoia. And I became very worried very quickly that the things that I had grown up with, that sort of fear, that sort of conspiracy theory culture had somehow or another taken hold in mainstream American culture. And the more that I investigated it and the more that I researched it, the more worried I became. Because what I found with my family and my community and my churches was that people were being prepared to accept violence. And in fact, to believe that, you know, their God required it, their religion required it, and to also start dismantling democratic systems such as uh, uh, elections and representative government. 
And over the past few years, as we've seen Trumpism grow and change, and, and in fact, more and more uh, Republicans and, and, and Americans, what I kept hearing was this talk about needing to preserve Western civilization and how things like Black Lives Matter or even the Democratic Party or even calls for reform and progress were uh, attacks on Western civilization. So what I decided to do was to go back in history. I wanted to go back to the Roman Empire when Christianity as a faith merged with the power structure. And I wanted to understand that history for myself. And what I found very quickly, Lewis, was that the same conspiracy theories, the same radicalizing ideas that we're dealing with now, instead of beginning with Donald Trump in 2016, which I think has become a very, very opportunistic fairy tale that some people like to tell, this has been a consistent thing throughout the centuries. And only by understanding that and seeing the damage that it has caused, the oppression it has inspired and legitimized, can we start to recognize what type of crisis we're in. And I've come to believe that we are on the precipice of something um, very, very dangerous. And I remain optimistic, but I think that any movement in a positive direction, it absolutely demands that we start taking this moment seriously. Well, that it demands that we begin to recognize who we are and where we come from. Yes, right? exactly. And, and you know, in the United States, one of the things that we're dealing with right now, and, you know, we're, we're seeing attacks on educators, we're seeing attempts to go ahead and change history and obscure history. Um, you know, we, we, we saw this example just recently in which we're seeing these textbooks and educational companies that are taking figures like Rosa Parks and turning them from civil rights icons, um, you know, and, and sort of taking away the white supremacist undercurrents, uh, the apartheid state that took place before civil rights. And we're seeing our history being hidden, and there's a very specific reason for that, because these power structures that require uh, intentional inequality, they, they seek to divide us while also obscuring the exploitation that's taken place. And these conspiracy theories um, that we're currently dealing with now, they follow a pattern that conspiracy theories have followed, again, for centuries since ancient Rome, which is going ahead and hiding who is responsible for conditions or who is responsible for declining conditions, which is, of course, the wealthy and the powerful, and then saying, no, there is a conspiracy against us. There is a supernatural evil element. Um, this could be Satan himself or in our current situation with QAnon or Republican politics. This could be, you know, satanic pedophile, pedophile cabals, these deep, dark, deep state conspiracies. And what it does is it goes ahead and takes the responsibility for the current situation and it puts it on the wealthy and the powerful's political enemies. So as a result, it began with the Christians in ancient Rome and now we're seeing it put on gay and trans communities, people of color, the poor and women. So what we're dealing with again is something that we have seen happen in one cycle after another and it has always happened in this way and when it happens – we need, to, we need to recognize it as a canary in the coal mine situation, which shows us that we are entering into another period of crisis. But these periods of crisis keep repeating themselves over the last 2,000 years. And when you say that they are imposed by the wealthy and the powerful, I mean, that goes back to the war between the rich and the poor, which 
is what was Solon was talking about in the fifth century BC. I mean, the rich are out to plunder the poor, and the poor are out to plunder the rich. But we've been living with that for a long time. Is that what you mean by the wealthy exploitation? Oh, absolutely. And and we can go ahead and start at the beginning here uh, with the Roman Empire. You know, uh, one of the first figures that I start with is uh, the Emperor Nero. And, and Nero, of course, um, is this infamous figure in history, um, you know, that, that was homicidal and, and vicious. And as the empire started to decline, and this is one of the things that we see. Currently, we're living in uh, what could be considered the American Empire or the American century. And all of these major powers, whether it's the Romans or the British or the Americans, what you always find is that there is a uniting myth that goes ahead and holds together the gravity of these empires. In Rome, it was the imperial cult. The idea that emperors were different from us, that they were living and breathing gods among us. You know, with the British, it's this uh, myth of, of, of white supremacy, the, the white man's burden, so to speak. With America, it's American hegemony in which uh, America is chosen by God to be a benevolent uh, superpower. And as those illusions and uniting myths start to lose power, which they always do, whether it's losing wars or losing influence or uh, having crises because of bad leadership or economic decline or even something like climate change. What you begin to notice is that that uniting myth, that story that goes ahead and supplies the empire its strength and its power, as that starts to flag, it requires a new myth to go ahead and come in and restore gravity and order. And in the case of uh, the Roman Empire, it was the bringing in of the Christian mythology or Christianity as a whole in which you have uh, the, the Christian faith, which was out, an outlawed faith, a persecuted faith. It's accepted by the Roman Empire, and it begins to set right again this uh, uniting myth or gravity. In the United States, the idea of America uh, and the American dream or the idea of a meritocracy, the idea of America being the chosen center of the universe as a benevolent empire, that illusion is again flagging. We are in a moment where we're starting to recognize systemic inequality. We're starting to recognize, you know, the history that led us here, whether it's the genocide of the indigenous population or the enslavement of African Americans. As we look at that, and as we start to push back, and as that myth starts to flag and weaken, we've reached another moment where we have to somehow or another replace that myth. And what we're looking at in the United States is both a destruction of history, the, the, the hidden history that we had talked about, but also this new idea of Christian nationalism or that we need to move the country backwards in order to move forwards, which is another thing that has consistently happened over time. Give me some examples of, or specific incident that you constantly talk about the American Revolution or talk mm -hmm. about the Puritan, the early Puritans in, in Massachusetts or talk about Woodrow Wilson and the manufacture of the Cold War. 
Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things when you actually start looking at deeper, more accurate histories, you start to realize that a lot of what we have learned through conventional history, and this is both, you know, in public education, bestsellers, documentaries and television shows, a lot of the history that we have gotten is actually mythology. You know, you take a look at the uh, American Revolution or the War for Independence, and one of the things that you, you have been taught for all this time is that it was some sort of spontaneous passion of, of liberty and freedom in which, you know, all Americans uh, turned against Great Britain. And of course, this is not true. It's, it's part of a larger story of, of how, you know, it was an economic battle for economic independence as the colonies started to push back against uh, Great Britain and, and wanted more of their, their wealth and more room for economic freedom. And part of the story that's told is actually another one of these conspiracy theories. And if you go back to the uh, the nascent days of the American Revolution, there is this paranoid idea that Great Britain is going to go ahead and form an alliance with enslaved Africans and Native Americans in order to go after Americans. So as a result, Americans have to push back and fight this war of, of independence. And this is another thing that we see over and over because these conspiracy theories follow the same pattern and it works like this. There is a chosen goodly people. They, they are special. Usually it's within the realm of the nation state. So let's take uh, America. And America is chosen for good things. It stands for everything that is benevolent. Meanwhile, there is a evil force outside of the nation state. Um, this, you know, going back to the American Revolution, can be Great Britain. Most often throughout history, it has been an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that the Jews are out to get people and that they're puppet masters who are trying to control history. This is not just in the American Revolution, but this is also in the French Revolution and so on and so forth. Basically, every sort of major movement you can trace throughout history. And then within the nation state or within the body, within the borders are traitors. There are uh, fifth columns amongst us. And again, that can be everything from natives and enslaved peoples. Um, most recently, whether it's civil rights or during the BLM protest, it's African-Americans who are somehow or another being tricked into doing this. And then, of course, there are outright traitors, which is why we're told about the deep state or we're told that there are liberals trying to tear everything down. Or with the John Birch Society and uh, Cold War America, it is everybody, including Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was supposedly a communist agent. But these conspiracy theories continue to play out. And what they do is they legitimize the need for violence because there's an apocalypse that we're looking at. There is something really, really bad brewing that can only be staved off if we defend ourselves. And also, again, anti-democratic strategies because we're told that the people who are trying to attack us, that shadowy influence on the outside and the traitors on the inside, that they have so corrupted the gears of representative government that we can no longer trust elections. And so when you take a look at this throughout history, these cycles just continually keep playing themselves out. Yes, and it's usually brought on by foreign war. I mean, the, the, uh, the Spanish-American War, the World War One, not so much World War Two, but certainly the Cold War. And because we believe ourselves to be always perpetually born innocent, <laughs> we are justified in using totalitarian means to defend ourselves. That's, that's what you say. 
Right. Yeah, and and the problem with this is that you know th- this has been just told perpetually over and over. I, I for myself, one of the things that has has happened in terms of my research is I grew up in the 1980s. The first president that I remember was Ronald Reagan, and you know I, I grew up completely surrounded by the American dream, the idea that uh, America again was a benevolent empire, and that you know all of these wars and all of these incursions were were always not only justified, but they were being treated as religious crusades. Because in any one of these given moments, you know, whoever the the villain is in in the American psyche, that person is being turned into uh, some sort of Hitlerian antichrist. And, you know, this has worked again. I I remember the first major war that I experienced was the Persian Gulf War, the first Iraq War, in which I was told, you know, that Saddam Hussein was another Hitler and had to be stopped. Meanwhile, there was no context, whether it was in the cover of, of it or discussions of the war to talk about how America and Iraq had been allied in the past or that Saddam Hussein had had friendly relations with the United States. And for me, and I think with a lot of other people, the Iraq war during the war on terror was one of those moments where maybe the scales fell from our eyes and we started to realize that these wars and these incursions were almost always being held on behalf of exploitative operations. They were always being held in order to open up new markets, to gain access to new resources. And meanwhile, the story that we were being told, whether it was weapons of mass destruction or some sort of a Hitlerian madman were simply mythologies that were going ahead and preparing us to accept what underneath it all was a a, a brutal and often unlawful uh, war. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the war prompted by the second George Bush was against all the world's evil. Remember that? Yes, exactly. And it, it, it itself, through the neoconservative ideology, was being treated as the idea that America had to go out and make the world safe for American-style democracy. Meanwhile, we are now living in the consequences of that. And one of the things that I, I have noticed through my research and, and, and through conversations and, and all of it is that we have reached this point which – oftentimes happens when you have an empire. We, we have reached the point of sort of intractable tension. Of course, um, we're starting to see neoliberal globalism start to unwind itself to a certain extent. You know, this burgeoning new Cold War with China is now leading to a resurgence of manufacturing in the United States, which would have been unthinkable in the 1990s or early 2000s. And what's actually happening is that the supposed end of history, this idea that we were going to live in a new American century, which of course was one of the ideological basis for the war on terror and the Iraq war, was itself a fairy tale, a mythology that we were were being told. And now we are reaching another point of crisis when – you know, when these world orders start to lose their power or they start to reach a point in which other countries, say Russia or China, start to push back, what you have is a new crisis that we have been told over and over is completely impossible. And oftentimes it will catch us unaware and it will seem completely impossible until it's inevitable. What, what then is our official attitude toward Putin's invasion of, of uh, the Ukraine? 
Well, one of the reasons that I titled the book The Midnight Kingdom um, is actually based on the ideology of a, of a Russian figure named Alexander Dugan. And Alexander Dugan is one of these figures who has often advised Vladimir Putin and has had a huge influence on uh, Russian ideology and, and movement. And Dugan since 1994 has been pushing for the invasion of Ukraine and, and saying that Russia needed to go ahead and start expanding itself again and that eventually that the American-led neoliberal order would be destroyed. He believed that we lived in a time that he called midnight, which is the last hours of the American empire and the neoliberal global order. And so one of the reasons that we're seeing the invasion of Ukraine and also we're seeing sort of a lot of the geopolitical movements that we are right now is that that American order in which America has basically been the benevolent hegemon supposedly since the end of World War II and the fall of the Soviet Union, it has reached a point in which American influence and American leadership is seen as vulnerable. This is due to uh, a large number of reasons, including poor decisions, bad leadership, the war on terror that turned into an absolute failure, but also the terminal end of that neoliberal system in which we have permanent austerity, we have record inequality, we have people who are unable to afford houses while we have individuals like Elon Musk who uh, can afford their own private space agencies. And we've seen the undermining of democracy and representative government, particularly at the federal level. It is seen as vulnerable. Right now, we are in this moment where America is looking at this authoritarian movement of which Donald Trump was an avatar. But there are a lot of very, very powerful, very wealthy people who have been intentionally undermining democracy now for decades. And we're reaching a point in which we either start to roll back that neoliberal austerity and treatment and that intentional inequality and we forge a new path or as, as history shows us with these cycles, we're looking at a very, very dangerous situation that is only getting more dangerous by the day. Well, it also entails the willingness to look honestly at who we are and where we've been. I mean, it's I don't remember who said it, but it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> that's right. exactly right. And and I think that's one of the things that's happening now is that a lot of what's happening in the United States is just absolutely illogical and nonsensical. We really need a reckoning to understand what has happened, particularly since neoliberalism started to take hold in the 1970s, and then especially uh, gained power in the 80s and the 90s, which resulted, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this and your listeners are as well, the redistribution of trillions of dollars from the working and middle classes to the wealth class. That has so thrown off everything from the economy to representative government to even how our systems work. I mean, you know, 2008 and our current uh, economic crises uh, can speak to that. But now – most people don't understand even what neoliberalism is. Um, you know, this isn't something we study. This isn't something we talk about. Instead, we have mythologies about red and blue states and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And what we've done is we've gotten lost in mythological stories of good and evil. And now 
we we live in a system in which we're not even actually discussing what the problems are. We can't agree on what climate change is and a direction for the future. As a result, America continues to fall behind its rivals and 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 basically to shoot itself in the foot over and over again. But we do not have the information that gives us the history and the context. And when you're missing those things, and we're intentionally being kept from that information in our education and in our discourse, when you're unable to understand where you're coming from, there's no way for you to understand where you are, and especially there's no way to understand where you need to go. In our current wilderness, do you hear any voice somewhere on the horizon or in the wilderness that might be giving us the sense of a direction or a way around or out of our present situation? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, I remain hopeful. I, I am optimistic. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm optimistic is, well, first of all, a conversation such as what we're having, you know, I, I think that the conversations and discourse that have grown up over the past uh, few years, particular, and, and by the way, I think Donald Trump did us an invaluable service. I think as buffoonish as he was, he showed us that the wealthy and the powerful are not necessarily talented or capable and, and basically destroyed in real time the myth of the meritocracy, which I think, by the way, that Elon Musk and a lot of these tech leaders are currently doing for us in, a, in another chapter of that realization. I think that we're starting to have conversations about what actual history is, how we've arrived at this point, and we're starting to talk about inequality. We're starting to talk about necessary reform, which is one of the reasons why the right wing is becoming more and more authoritarian. This is one of the reasons why educators and curriculum and, and, and history are being censored and attacked relentlessly by people like Ron DeSantis and also why these right wing billionaire donors, the same people who funded Donald Trump, who funded January 6th, who have continually attacked um, liberal democracy itself, why they are pouring so much money into the attack on education and the attack on actual history. What I am optimistic about is that we are currently seeing grassroots movements of solidarity, of mutual aid, of labor union and, and labor collectivization. And these are happening in places by – and it's being carried out by people who have no formal training, who don't have an education of labor organizing, and they're racking up wins against some of the most historically powerful and wealthy corporations that the world has ever seen. And what history tells us is that it's not necessarily going to be the political leaders. It's not even necessarily going to be the journalists because many times the political and media class are so within the problematic system that they can't even start to understand what is happening. And, and unfortunately, in, in the United States, we've seen a lot of that over the past few years. It most often happens from a grassroots perspective. And I think we're starting to see a building movement, not just in the United States, we're seeing it in China. We're seeing it in Iran. We're seeing it in Russia. We're starting to recognize that something has happened here and, and we're starting to educate ourselves and we're starting to organize, which gives me incredible hope. It does not mean this will be easy or that this will not necessarily be tragic in many ways. But I, I, I do remain optimistic because of that. Well, on that optimistic note, we can come to the end of the discussion. So thank you very much, Jared Yates Sexton. We're speaking with us today about your new book, Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. 
Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.